Hello there, everybody. Yes, it's only me today. Joni's sister, uh, Pat, Joni's sister, Patty's sister. Joan is in town, and they are busy right now, so it's only me today. I can't really banter with myself. At least I won't do it in public. So I'm glad you all are here um, today as we resume our journey through John's Gospel. It'll, it'll be a little weird. For me, not having Patty here, I don't have a dog with me, so that's that's probably just as well. But in any event, I'm glad to be with you. It's a beautiful day out, and <coughs> we're coming today to some really, really difficult passages. Difficult in the sense that they are about Jesus' um, uh, crucifixion and so we will just, well, I think we will take it slowly. We will just see how far we get today. I am here to answer as many questions as I can. Um, and what I what I'm, don't get today in the comment section, we'll have the opportunity to come to next week because in person, if you can come, because next week we begin the in-person class in addition to staying online. So let me call up. I actually made up a slide for this. Um, here we go. Next week, Pearl Hall. I'm going to start at noon, so we'll probably gather about 11.45 like we traditionally did. Um, we'll end by 1.15, and we're going to start this up next week. And so starting next week, we'll do class. There'll be the in-line... <laughs> in line, there'll be the in-person class that we're doing. And in addition, that in-person class will be streamed just to the same Facebook live page that we use right now. So, and we will just be staying in the Gospel of John till we finish it. And then, like I said, we're going to move over to 1 Corinthians because I would like to stay in the New Testament on Tuesdays since I'm in the midst of doing Isaiah on Mondays. And so once we start up next week um, in person, then with the Tuesday class in person and online and the Monday class online only, that will be how things will remain because the, the Monday class will stay online only, not in person. And we'll just see how all that goes. I think it should go, should go fine. And um, it'll be great to see everybody. So just help me get the word out. If you have people who, you know, we're, we're Tuesday regulars, but, but haven't really done the online thing, let them know. I'll be sending out an email um, this afternoon or tomorrow about, about it, just telling people it's happening. And uh, come on a little bit early next Tuesday so we can all catch up and just just kind of just kind of get going again. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by the state of Piero. Piero. It's all been recarpeted and the walls, everything's been repainted. Um, the removable walls have all been redone. There is new sound system. There's a screen down there now that comes out of the ceiling and um, and we'll be streaming from there. It'll be a different sort of streaming experience because here I'm at my desk. The camera's right here. Um, I'm sort of in control of the whole thing. Um, the streaming next week will begin a little bit more like the way it is on Sunday morning streaming where, you know, I'm a little bit of a distance from the camera because the camera's up in the ceiling and 
the screen may be a little bit hard to see. I don't know if, but it doesn't matter that much because don't use that many slides ever on on my in my Tuesday classes. So that's about it. Um, if you have any questions about that, let me know. Ask them here in the comments section. Drop me an email later today. But next week, the twenty second, we begin. Um, we we begin the new in person addition to the streaming that we do. So, that is good news. I know y'all have been waiting a long time, as have I. So, uh, I have the sound effects, so I might as well use them. Uh, that's my view. Okay. So, I think we're good. I think you can hear me, see me. Should all be working. I don't have patio over there to check anything for me, but yeah, I think we're I think we're good. So I'll remind you at the end of class about next week being in person as well as online, and then you'll get the e email from me. So we're not taking anything away. We're just adding the in person component to the online component. So so sophisticated, aren't we? So last week in John, so I'm going to open us up with prayer. Pray with me. Gracious Lord, we come to you today in prayer. We are thankful for the opportunity to gather like this. Um, it's really a respite away from, from the horrors um, in, in the world right now, particularly in, in, in Ukraine. And this where we are in John's Gospel is a stark reminder that indeed you entered into human suffering. You took suffering upon yourself. Um, and and just just keep that at the front of our minds today as we begin to, to step through this story. Um, uh, and just be with me in Patty's absence to be able to see everybody's comments and stuff and questions as they ask them and uh, just make this a, a good time for us all, a helpful time for us all. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends. So, last week we finished up at the end of chapter 18. And um, to, so today we're going to begin at the beginning of chapter 19, 19 verse 1. So let me talk about chapter 18 just a bit. It is focused on Jesus' trials. That's where we were last week. Remember, he's taken before Caiaphas. And the way John writes it is that he intersperses, <laughs> intercalates is the fancy word for it. The, the, so Jesus before Caiaphas, Peter denying Jesus, Jesus before Caiaphas. Um, Peter denying Jesus, and then Jesus is bound over um, to Pilate, the Roman governor. And we have this fairly long confrontation, really, between Pilate and Jesus. And it's clear that, that Pilate doesn't want to do what the priests want him to do. What the priests want him to do is to execute Jesus, and Pilate doesn't want to. And we talked last week about the reason for that, and I think it's really important to understand what that reason is. It is not because Pilate is a tender-hearted person. Even as people were in that world, he wasn't tender-hearted. He was called back to Rome twice in the course of his governorship 
um, to explain why he was so tough on the Jews. So he, this it's not a tender-hearted world. We'll, we'll see that today when we talk about crucifixion. I mean, this was, it was the Roman way, so it's not tender-hearted. The, the, the deal is that Pilate simply doesn't want to do what the priests want him to do. They have been um, in, they've had a difficult relationship the entire time that Pilate has been in uh, Israel, Judea. And he, they, they, he just doesn't want to. I mean, I think that's pretty, that's pretty human. They have caused him a lot of grief, the priests have. And um, just just doesn't want to do what he said, what they say, and we'll see where that goes today. So so that is, I think, um, the underlying motivations that you see lived out in the behavior of people that you see in chapter eighteen. So let's step back for just a second and talk about some of these key groups. So you have the priests, you have the high priest and his family. It's a dynastic title passed on from father to son. The high priest Annas is still living. His son Caiaphas is the high, current the current high priest in that year. Um, and they are oversee the whole temple system. All the money, all the sacrifices, all of the priests. It is a huge deal. They are really the leaders of Israel. I think if you sort of put it in a semi-governmental sense because the temple is is the very heart of the Jewish religion. Those are the priests, and they are opponents of Jesus. Jesus has pronounced God's judgment on the temple, so it's pretty understandable that they are opposed to Jesus. Then there are the Pharisees. They are a sect of, oh, people really disagree. Maybe... Somewhere 6,000 on the low end, 10,000, 15,000 on the upper end. Um, educated Jews who are committed to the keeping of the law. Being convinced that God will um, do God's big thing. He will rescue Israel, kick out the Romans when the Israelites keep that law. And in that, they're not really wrong, but they don't see that Jesus is God's mean to accomplish that. And they have a lot of influence. The influence they have is not really by law. They have the kind of influence that you have because you are respected, because they are protectors of the law, which was cherished by the devout Jews. So they have a lot of, a lot of influence um, in Israel. And because of their misunderstanding about Jesus, they too oppose him. Then there are the Sadducees. Not Don't hear so much about them in John's Gospel. They're the call them the upper class folks, the wealthier folks in town. They're totally comfortable with Roman rule. Why? Because they've gotten rich under it. They don't want the world turned upside down. They have a set of their own religious beliefs. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They basic anything associated with, with God stepping in and turning things upside down, the Sadducees don't really ascribe to. So then there are the scribes. The scribes are common in the various ancient Near Eastern cultures. 
They are the writers. They are the learned folks. They are the, I guess, the closest thing that you might call to being lawyers in their world. They're educated. They can read. They can write. Um, and those abilities and their intellectual gifts enable them to have a lot of influence. And they are natural allies of the Pharisees. And then you have the Romans. The Romans, by this time, have been in Judea for about 90 years. I'm mentally adding it in my head. About 90 years. And they originally came in under Pompey the Great to settle a civil war, and they basically never left. And um, Herod the Great, who you know about, the one who massacred the infants in Bethlehem, he was like their client king their vassal king, to use the term from a later age. When he died, his kingdom was split up amongst his sons, and they were of better and worse. And the Romans realized that if this was going to work, they were going to have to start sending in their own people. And that happens in about 6 AD. And... Pontius Pilate is the latest one of those. He is the governor in charge of this Roman province called Judea. And he represents the power of Rome. And the Roman Empire is vast all the way from Britain down across the Mediterranean, across over into Palestine. And um, they rule it well. They're good administrators. They bring peace. You've probably heard of the Pax Romana in high school or college, right? It's a time of peace in a way that that part of the world had not been in peace before. Um, but it's, a, it, it's, it's like an iron hand inside a velvet glove, you might think about it. That, that iron hand is always there. And, and that iron hand is what's going to fall on Jesus, you see. So... Those are the key figures swirling around what is happening on this Friday. And Pilate, at the end of chapter 18, is just incredibly frustrated with the whole thing. He doesn't want to do what the priests want him to do. He just really doesn't. And he's managed to get himself into, into a philosophical conversation with Jesus. And you're going like, Wow. Okay, so, but we'll, we'll see. I won't, I, I won't jump ahead. We'll just say that Pilate is going to have to go through with this. He's going to have to carry this, this ball forward. Okay, so let's go to chapter 19, verse 1, and we'll begin this story of horror. Okay. Um, that this is, well, I guess I have a few things to say before we even start. This particular chapter. Crucifixion was brutal, horrifying, shameful. It was used by the Romans as propaganda. Look what happens to those who stand up to Caesar, who oppose Rome. See what happens to them? 
That's what that's the heart of crucifixion. It's not just a common execution of criminals. That's the thing. It it was how they dealt with rebels in particular. And the uh, Jewish historian Josephus tells us that when Jesus was about 10 years old, a couple of thousand Jews were crucified along the roadways of Galilee um, to put down a tax revolt that started in the city of Sepphoris. So, so um, I'll talk more when we get there about the particulars of crucifixion, but there's no reason to think that there's that Jesus's crucifixion is any different than other crucifixions of the day. The Romans were skilled at it. They knew what they were doing. It was their standard operating way to put to death people who were seen as rebels. Okay? So, and it be it would typically begin with a flogging, and that's where it begins in chapter 19, is with the flogging. Now, even flogging, you see, there's a whole range that that covers. And um, at the most terrible range of it, it could kill someone. You often I remember going up here and about like, give them 40 lashes. Well, depending on how the lashes are administered, that would kill most men. And the, the, the exact nature of the lashes. And was it just the leather straps? Are there rocks or spikes or things embedded in the I mean, it's just so brutal. It's almost hard to comprehend, actually. just It just is. And um, flogging a, a, a person before they were crucified um, often hastened their death. But it... But if you wanted it to drag out, if the governor or whoever condemned the person to death wanted it to drag out, they would have to do a lighter flogging because they didn't want to accelerate. They didn't want to accelerate the death. Um, typically with Jesus, um, we see it as a pretty, a pretty heavy flogging. And I think that makes sense for Pilate because he doesn't want to do what the priests wanted to do. And he, he's, they, he figures they want him to drag him to drag this out. But he's not going to do that. He's going to get this done and over with because he's, his, his hand is forced by the priests, as we'll see. So, chapter, if there are any questions or comments or anything, I'm, I'm got my eye, since I don't have my patty here, I got my eye on the comment section here. So, if you have anything, please type it in. I guess you could bring it next week when we're in person. You see, that would be cool, too. Gosh, it's going to be great to be back in person. So, verse, chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate, right, the governor, took Jesus and had him flogged. Standard procedure in a, in a crucifixion. Now the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on Jesus' head. They clothed him in a purple robe. Purple is the color of royalty, you see, because of the cost of the dyes. And went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. You know, 
you can any you can see the irony here, right? They put on his head a crown of thorns. They put on him a purple robe. They hail him as king of the Jews. And he is. He is king of the Jews. You know, remember the famous phrase, I, maybe it's from a psalm, I don't even know anymore. God will not be mocked. Probably sounds like a psalm. God will not be mocked. They're mocking Jesus, but what they're speaking is the truth. He deserves a crown, not a crown of thorns, but a crown, yes. The royal, the royal color of purple, yes. He is king of the Jews. And not only is he king of the Jews, which means Messiah, not only is he king of the Jews, he is king of all. He is the king of kings, right? So, so this, this story, the way John tells it, is packed with irony. It's like when Caiaphas says, earlier on, a few weeks ago, when Caiaphas says, well, you know, it's better for one person to die than for us all to die at the hands of Rome. And, he, and of course, we understand the meaning in that, the, the theology in that, the lived-out theology in that, that Jesus would die for the sake of us all. But, you know, Caiaphas is just thinking in very practical, earthly terms. So the soldiers, Jesus is flogged, they put the crown of thorns on him, the purple robe, they mock him by calling him king of the Jews, not understanding what they are doing, and they slap him in the face. It's it, shame and humiliation are inflicted. They're part and parcel of this whole process. Everything that is done is meant to heighten shame and humiliation because in the culture that they live in, the key currency in that culture is not money. It's honor. It's honor. So you, you gather honor to yourself and you avoid shame. So shame in this honor-shame culture is, is just the worst. So the crucifixion brings all of that together. So they want, to, they want everybody to know that this person is not only going to suffer terribly physically and die in great pain, but they're going to be humiliated and shamed and their family will be shamed. It's just everything that, that the Romans can pack around this, this propaganda put before people saying, this is what happens if you stand up to Rome. Okay, so I think I have a question. Was Pilate damned the way Judas was? Hmm. I, 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 I'm, no, no. Could it have been a different governor? Yes. Sure. Pilate's just the Roman governor. He's he's the player in this. He's an instrument of what has to happen. You see, Jesus is going to remain faithful all the way to death, even death on a cross, because he is he is goodness, 
right? He's the embodiment of ultimate goodness. He loves God and loves others every day and in every way. And when he meets the evil powers of this world, what we call in the Methodist Church the spiritual forces of wickedness, which you see played out in Pilate, you see played out in the priests, you see played out in the Pharisees, and you see played out in Putin today, right? When Jesus runs, runs into those, there's only two things that are going to happen. He's either going to be, they're either going to get rid of him or he's going to escape and be unwilling to, 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 to do, to be obedient and, and to follow this through. To be, he's going to be unwilling to be faithful to God. And so he doesn't escape. He could. He could escape from the Garden of Gethsemane easily, but he doesn't escape. So I don't think Pilate's any more damned than the crowd is who are going to shout for his death. The crowd who said, no, we, no, give us Barabbas. Get rid of this Jesus guy. It's, there, there's plenty of blame and damning to go around. Good question, though, Mona. Okay, so verse 4. Once more Pilate came out, and he said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Now, okay, so now he's coming out to see. So Jesus is flogged. He's been humiliated. He's got the robe, the crown of thorns. It's begun. Pilate still comes before the crowds gathered to see all of this. So let me go to a few aids that I brought today to help us understand this. Okay, so here is this map of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. Nice and simple little pen and ink map. Um, and you, I have an arrow pointing to the general area of the house of Caiaphas. And if you look north of it, toward a little bit higher, you'll see Herod's palace. So here I have an arrow pointing to Herod's palace. And if you look a little bit further north of it, you can see the area called Golgotha. Okay? That is the place of execution, the place of the skull. And I'm going to show you in the next slide what makes it a perfect place, why the Romans use this place, okay? So Herod's palace, let's see, what, what's the next slide I have here, okay? This is from the model in Jerusalem of uh, today, it's in Jerusalem today, it's at the museum there, um, but it's showing Jerusalem about, about 100 AD, maybe 100 years after Jesus. So there's some things there that didn't exist in um, Jesus' day, like that Colosseum slash arena right at the top of the picture. That wasn't there in Jesus' day. But this is Herod's palace. And this is, th this, is, this is where Pilate is. Virtually all scholars working today would agree that this is where, this is where Pilate is. He's a Roman governor, He's not going to stay over at the Antonia Fortress, which I'll show you in a minute where all the soldiers are. You might think he would, but really? 
this is a nice place here. This is a big place. And um, the people have come in through the gate and they are um, um, gathered and Pilate has come out to, to speak to them. So this is the model. You, the bottom arrow is pointing to the very end of Herod's palace. And the arrow at the top is the Antonia Fortress. And the circled area is Golgotha. And the reason it's a perfect place for the Romans to use for crucifixions is that it is outside the city walls. That's the agreement they made with the Jews. But it's at a crossroads. Look at those roads. There's roads coming out of the city, roads passing by the city, because crucifixions needed to be to be public. It's all about propaganda value. All about propaganda value. You'll sometimes see in movies where it's depicted as, you know, kind of on a far away, distant hill that they've all had to walk to and stuff. No, that's not how it would be. They want everybody to see this. That's the point. They, um, the Romans would have left um, several uprights, uprights that are permanently in the ground that they that they would use, right? So they don't have. They don't always dig and put it. They don't. They wouldn't dig and put it in a new upright. They just leave some uprights there that they would use for crucifixions, this, this execution of rebels against Rome. Now, these uprights would typically be six or ten feet tall, okay? Which tells you what? That the, the, the prisoners are not very far off the ground. That's another thing the movies get wrong about this. They're not way, Jesus and the rest of them, they're not going to be way up in the air there. They're very close to the ground. They're close enough to the ground that we know that animals would sometimes be able to attack the feet of those who are being crucified. Um, and it would be a big engineering feat to get somebody way up in the air on one of these things. So we know they weren't because we have, they practice crucifixions in more places than Jerusalem. And so you have this upright post and the prisoner would carry the cross beam. Nobody could carry the whole cross. That's another thing the movies get wrong. or the, It's just too big. It, the cross piece alone probably weighs 150 pounds, maybe 200 pounds. And Jesus needs help with that. Just the cross piece. Um, and they would take and, and put the cross piece up there, hang the prisoner from it using straps or nails or whatever. There'd be a little a little shelf, a little plank put under the prisoner's feet so that they could they would have something to push off of because when you're hanging on a cross like that, the only way that you can breathe is to push up with your legs. So you push up with your legs, you expand your diaphragm, you're able to take air in, and then you kind of fall back down, and then you push up, and you breathe, and you fall back down. 
Um, people who were crucified typically died of asphyxiation because they got too weak to push themselves up and so they would slowly suffocate. When Romans brought the prisoners to the site where the crucifixion would happen, the prisoner was typically stripped completely. Why? To heighten the shame and humiliation of it all. Typically, they would be left there. Might take them days and days to die, perhaps depending on what kind of shape they were in when they got there. What would happen to their bodies, typically? Typically, the Romans left the bodies there to basically rot. Why? Because it's just like this big, horrifying, brutal billboard. This is what happens when you stand up to Rome. And every conceivable thing you could do to make it more brutal, more horrifying, more shameful, they packed all of it in there. You know, we lose touch with that. We come to St. Andrew on a Sunday morning, and there's this huge, beautiful wooden cross hanging from the ceiling. It is huge and beautiful and empty because Jesus um, rose but I remember when I first started teaching this and learning this and really diving into it in ways I had never even thought about, the thought occurred to me that what we really need to have hanging up there is some kind of dirty, rusted, rotten electric chair that might have the same impact on us that a cross did in the first centuries. It was shocking for the Christians to, to, to embrace a cross. They don't right away as a symbol. Everybody knew what a cross represented, and, and the Christians don't, don't embrace it right away. It's too, it's too shocking. It's too awful. It was such an awful thing that Roman citizens could not be crucified. They could be executed, sure, off with their head, sure. Uh, most executions, a lot of them were just off with their head, something else, but but crucifixion, oh my gosh, save for those who were seen as rebelling against Rome. And um, so, there we go. See what I mean? This is a hard chapter, chapter 19. But if we... What, this is Friday. This is happening on. You see, this is Good Friday. Jesus endures this horror. He endures this shame. He endures this humiliation. Does he have to? No. Why does he do it? For our sake. He will be that one faithful Jew who loves God and loves others and ushers in the kingdom of God. He will stay faithful to that vocation even as it brings him to the horrors, horrors and brutality 
of this Roman cross. So, verse 4. You can picture the palace. Once more Pilate came out and he said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, he's, you know he's weak, he's bleeding. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Well, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. So I saw this in a, a depiction of this once in a movie that I thought was good, that the, the priests and some of the Pharisees have, have gone out into the crowd, you see, and so the fists are raised and the shouts go out, crucify, and the crowd, like crowds too often do, pick up the shout. So now it sort of builds. So that, that the crowd is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Um, everybody is swept up in this. But Pilate then says, well, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. One, there isn't a basis for the charge against him, but that's not really. Pilate is not a person that would care about the death of an innocent person. That's not this world. Death is close at hand in this world. It's just right there. But the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die. Like blasphemy, right? Because when Jesus was before Caius, what he, Caiaphas, I am with those who think that when Jesus was before Caiaphas, it was very clear that Jesus was, was claiming more than Messiahship. When he, in, in, when he calls himself the Son of Man. So he, the Jewish leaders say, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Well, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. What is he afraid of? Well, he could be afraid of the crowds. He could have a growing sense that there is some level of mystery and stuff around this man, Jesus. And as most people were in this world, especially the pagans, Pilate would be a superstitious man. So maybe he has this growing sense within him that, oh my gosh, you know, what, what's happening here? What am I doing? What, you know, might be nothing much more than this feeling some people might get if they break a mirror or a black cat crosses their path. But, and it may just be that he is this, this growing realization that he is not going to win this confrontation with the priests. He is going to have to do what they want. So, back to verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. 
Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Well, that might make Pilate a little bit more nervous because for this pagan guy, his sort of his mental mindset is that there are these people you would meet who have some portion of the divine in them. Now, it wouldn't be, it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the pagans in the Greco-Roman world, they're, they, have, they believe in a pantheon of gods. It's kind of like a big triangle. That's why I'm holding my hands in a triangle. Up at the top of the triangle are figures, Zeus, Jupiter, whether you're talking Greek or Roman, same, same idea, same God. But down at the bottom, there are these semi-divine figures. And I say, that's what, that's what the Caesars will increasingly claim to be, these semi-divine figures. And so that may be why I'm thinking it's something more like that than Pilate simply wanting to know, like, well, tell me what town you're from. <laughs> Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. And then Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And who's above? If you go straight up, who do you meet? <laughs> you meet God. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. A New Testament theme that you see played out in Paul is that governments, even when they're given over to terrible acts, governments are instituted by God to keep order because of the effects of the human rebellion against God, that to, to counter the effects of sin, that, and you just need to stop for a minute and think about oh, us living in a world of anarchy where there is no government, there's no police, there's no, there, there's nothing and nobody to keep any of the peace. What it would be like to live in that world? Can't imagine it. Would there be a world where sin was just allowed to flourish? So, so you find sometimes kind of surprisingly in in the New Testament in Paul's letters that this recognition that that governments are here for a reason, even the Roman Empire, even Caesar, but that all flows from God. It all flows from God. So in that sense, you know, Pilate's authority flows from God. Pilate is an instrument of the government charged with keeping order. The greater sin here lies with the priests. There's no reason Jesus would ever have come into Pilate's mind or knowledge. The priests are the drivers of this. The priests abetted by the Pharisees, they are the drivers of this. They could have stopped it. 
They've been offered ample opportunity to stop it, but they want to be rid of Jesus. And they're going to be rid of Jesus. And they're about to make the most horrible, horrible mistake in the pursuit of that goal. So, Jesus says to Pilate, verse 11, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. That's the priests. Well, from then on, whatever this actually is, how it plays out, I'm not sure. From, of course not. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. <laughs> that, is the, that is the final card, you see, for Pilate. He can't have word getting back to Rome that he let some rebel king go? No. I mean, that, that's the power that the Jewish leaders have over Pilate. That's the, that, that, that's the big card that they can play here, and they play it. You know? Yeah. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And that would be include a king of the Jews. There's only room in in the Roman Empire. There's only room for one king, one top dog. And who is that? That's Caesar. It's not this fellow from Nazareth. That that's that's all linked linked that up with the whole. Uh, uh, hailing of Jesus as king of the Jews by the soldiers a few sentences before. Verse 13. Well, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. Um, there would be a place there where judgments would be rendered by Herod or by Pilate or whoever was in charge. You know, it's kind of like, what is it like? It's, it's kind of like a judge's bench, I guess, right? That we we have in our own courtrooms today. The, the whole setting of it, the, the, the furniture itself conveys authority. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover... And it was about noon. Now, if you took and you laid out the Gospels piece by piece, side by side, you'd find here a little, some, some conflicts between John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels. And Mark, Mark says it's, 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 it's at the third hour, which would be like nine o'clock in the morning, not the sixth hour. In the Greek, it's not noon. It says the sixth hour. But John says at the sixth hour, at noon. So probably the wrong question to ask is who is right. The question to ask is, okay, what's going on? And then you realize, ah, in Passover, the Passover lambs to be sacrificed 
were slaughtered at noon at the sixth hour, right? And then you realize that again, John is using the narrative, the story to tell theology. They're all bound together for John. All his gospels filled with theological symbols and significance. As he tells this story, he wants us to grasp what is happening. So the Passover lambs are sacrificed at noon. Who is, who is Jesus? Oh, he's a Passover lamb. Sacrifice for the sake of Israel. Sacrifice for the sake of the whole world. It's not a matter of the clock. <laughs> I guess there's a way to put it. So... Here is your king, Pilate says to the Jews. He's gone back out, back out with Jesus. The crowds are all there. Pilate realizes that's it. That's it. And he goes back out to the Jews and says, Here is your king, this king of the Jews, right? But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. And he says, Shall I crucify your king? And we'll look at the chief priest's answer. It's one of those sentences in the Bible that is about as self-damning as it gets. They say we have no king but Caesar. And your heart just drops and your mouth dries. No king but Caesar. These are the priests. What should be written across their hearts is no king but God. When they when they come when they cross the Jordan River under God's leadership and the leadership of Joshua, they don't even they don't have a human king. They have their rule their their disputes are settled by people called judges. And it's these judges who lead them into battle, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, others. Because God is their king. They eventually demand a human king like everybody else has, and that is a disaster. Because God is to be their king. No king but God, no king but God, no king but God. Of course, these are monotheistic, radically monotheistic people. Monotheistic Jews who believe that God... There is one God, and this God created everything there is, and this God rules over the cosmos, and this God chose them. And the world would be put right through them, and they would just so often forget that. And here are the chief priests damning themselves, Mona. We have no king but Caesar. Oh, I just can't convey. You know, another, another incredibly self-damning, uh, well, maybe not quite so self-damning, is the last verse of the book of Judges. Um, when things have just deteriorated and deteriorated, and it says, there was no king in the land. They had even abandoned God, you see. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Not how God's people are supposed to live. We're supposed to do what, what is right in God's eyes. God knows what right is. God knows what, what goodness is. God is right. God is goodness. He is the definition of right and goodness. We are not. So we can't simply do what seems right in our own hearts, in our own eyes. 
No, sin will lead us astray. Will lead us astray time and again. So, wow. No, we, I just, I'm always struck by that line here in John. We have no king but Caesar. Wow. Wow. And so once, once we get there, John closes it all up. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. You know, to them. It, it is the Roman government who will crucify Jesus. It is Roman soldiers who will make up the death squad. But John emphasizes that this is really the Jewish leadership who crucified Jesus. And sometimes in over the last 2,000 years, this has been turned into some kind of turn back on the Jews as some anti-Semitic thing where, oh, look, the Jews are the ones who killed Jesus. We need to understand that Jesus is Jewish. All the Jesus followers are Jewish. This is a Jewish story, yes. Okay? This is a Jewish story, yes. The ones who carry out the crucifixion are the Romans. But does the Jewish leadership, the priests and the, and, and the rest, do, do they, are they responsible here too? Of course they are. But that doesn't damn the Jews for all time. They've all made a terrible, 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 terrible mistake. And they just they just they just can't see the truth. They have given themselves over to evil. They have given themselves over to the spiritual forces of wickedness. Go back. If you want to go back this week and read the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus. And he's the Pharisee. He says, Nicodemus, you how can you not understand? But Nicodemus has a worldview and he's locked into it. And and he just can't see it. He can't see what's happening in Jesus. And he can't he can't see that Jesus is the fulfillment of what they had been waiting for. These promises spread across all of the scroll of Isaiah, the great scroll of Isaiah. He just can't see it. He will. He defended Jesus, you remember, and he will come to be a follower of Jesus. Um, sadly, after Jesus' death, though. So, okay. Any questions at this point? Anybody wants to ask while I'm... We're just going to go a little bit further. And then we're next week when we are all together in person next week. Streaming will also ha be happening. But we are going to be... Um, in Piro Hall. It's going to be awesome. Okay. So let's go just a little bit further because it's really one long telling, right? So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. These would be the Roman soldiers. It would be the execution squad. <coughs> Sometimes in the past, really the kind of distant past, honestly, <coughs> there were people who would say, well, like Jesus didn't really die. Well, to do that, to hold that, you would have to assume that this squad of soldiers 
who would have been well acquainted with life and death and crucifixion, didn't know how to do their jobs. No, of course he dies. They knew what they they knew how to they knew they knew how to they knew how to kill people. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. As this would be the cross piece, not the whole, not the vertical piece, the cross piece. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Aramaic is the language of the land, not Hebrew. Aramaic's a related language, but it's not Hebrew. They're both a Semitic language, but Aramaic is the language of the street, and it's called Golgotha, which means um, place of the skull. And let me just go back to that. There we go. That's the circle there. It it is. Okay, look look closely at the area around the south. Let, let the um. Now I want to use that kind of direction. Look at the bottom left portion of the screen as you're looking at it, below below the circle, the oval, and you see all the blue. <coughs> that's all places where water would collect because this area here circled in the blue and some areas around it were areas where a lot of stone was dug up quarried for the building of the temple mount and the rock is the rock is limestone so it's fairly easy to 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 work and to deal with, and what it left behind was, when you after the after you quarried it, um, depressions, obviously, and that water could could would make like little ponds and things, but also gardens, because it was water, because it would hold water. There were gardens and greenery and the rest, and a lot of easy places to build tombs. Tombs were built by either taking over a little cave in the limestone, which was common, or kind of digging one into the limestone. I think in most cases they would find an opening and a little cave, and then they might expand the opening and expand the stuff, and then they would then the family would use that as a tomb, and they would have a um, because of how they buried people, which we will talk about next week. Um, they would have a large round stone, a large round wheel, if you want to, that's a better way to think about it, that would roll back and forth across the opening. But you would find them in a place like this quarry. Then, of course, if you go ahead, you know that's, that's where Joseph of Arimathea has a tomb. That is the area. If you go to Jerusalem or you've been to Jerusalem, where I have circled in the oval, that is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. Because that's the place. Up north of town, there is the garden tomb. It looks like the place, but it's not the place. This, today, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, doesn't look like the place, but it is the place. <laughs> so I usually tell people, if you take the two, kind of put them together, you've both got geographically the place, and you've got a beautiful garden that sort of feels like the place. But the actual place is right here. And how do we know that? 
One, it makes eminent sense, okay, given the layout of Jerusalem and so forth in the day. But secondly, when the Emperor Constantine, let me do this, the Emperor Constantine becomes a Christian, his mother also does, and she makes a trip to the Holy Land, what is now holy for her. And she goes from place to place asking where things happen. And when she goes to Jerusalem, she asks where Jesus was crucified. And they say, well, it was over here, but you know those Romans, they were trying to put an end to all that stuff, so they built a pagan temple over the place. And she has the pagan temple taken down and the beginnings of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre built over it. That's, And it was expanded and changed a lot over the centuries. Yep. But it's all at that place. It's at that place. They're going to take Jesus out there. There are at least three upright posts, maybe more. In verse 18, there they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Um, I grew up being told that these were just thieves. They're not just thieves. These would be rebels. That's who Barabbas was. There was a strong revolutionary zeal in, in, in Israel at this time. They were tired of being under Roman rule. They had a strong sense that God intended them to be, to be, to be free, to kick out the dang pagan oppressors. And some people were not willing to wait for the Messiah to show up. They were willing to pick up the sword. And, and they were called zealots. Um, and these two on either side of Jesus would be those kind of rebels. And that's how they get. That's how they end up on a cross. So, Pilate had a notice prepared. Remember, I said this. This is all about propaganda value. This is all about making it public. It's just like a billboard. It's gross. I understand. But that's that's why it happens as it does. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. And it read what? It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, mocking again. This is what happens. Ha <laughs> ha, King of the Jews. Yeah, right. Look at this. He's crucified. That's what Rome does to supposed kings of the Jews. Boom. Jesus of Nazareth is out of the way. No account place. King of the Jews. Ha, 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 ha. We'll put the sign over his head and everybody's going to understand. There's not going to be any confusion about what is going on here. There had been some would-be messiahs before Jesus. There would be would-be messiahs after Jesus. Rome knew what to do with them. Jesus would have disappeared in the pages of history. Just another failed would-be Messiah, except for what? The fact that he was resurrected. That's what changed everything. The resurrection is the proof that Friday meant something, that the cross meant something. That he didn't, wasn't just another failed would-be Messiah. Instead, he was God's only begotten son. And indeed, through him, the world was reconciled to God. 
But this sign, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, the same ironies with the soldiers. It's an accurate sign, is it not? It's an accurate sign. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Yes, of course, the oval. I just showed you. I won't go back there again. Yes, of course. What's the point of having your billboard where nobody can read it? And the sign was written in Aramaic, the local language, Latin, the language of the Romans, and Greek, which was everybody's second language. If, you, if it wasn't your first language in that world, it was your second language. It was like English today. If, if, if English is not a person's first language, it's almost certainly their second. Okay? The sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Why? Okay. Pilate does it, I think, hoping or believing that it will enable the billboard value. Right? Well, okay, we got people from, this is Jerusalem. It's a pretty busy place. We got people here who come from different parts of the world. Aramaic, we'll put Aramaic up there. We'll put Latin up there. We'll put Greek up there. Not realizing that even that proclaims to the world that this man is king of the Jews, right? That those three languages that it's written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek encompass this, takes us to, to a larger idea than Jesus merely being king of the Jews. But as the Samaritans proclaimed in John chapter 4, he is savior of the world. Remember that story when Jesus meets the woman at the well, um, the Samaritan woman, and she goes back and tells the villagers, and then Jesus goes to the villagers, and these, these despised Samaritans are the first ones in the gospel to proclaim that Jesus is Savior of the world because they're not Jews. <laughs> Messiah is not about them. Messiah is the Jewish idea. So yes, Jesus is Messiah, but more. He's, he's Savior of the world, and that needs to be written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So, there we go. Verse 21. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate. They say, oh, don't write the king of the Jews, but write up there that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. <laughs> he's not going to change it. He wants to, you know, he's kind of lost this struggle with him, but he's going to make this one last, one last little thing. No, I know what you want me to change about this. And I'm not going to change it. What I have written, I have written. Which, okay, which feeds the irony. Because he isn't merely, we're not merely claiming that Jesus is king of the Jews. He, he is king of the Jews. That is a true statement. He is Messiah. 
He is the long-awaited Messiah. It's a true statement. Just like saying you could take sodium and chlorine and you you get salt, right? Just a, just a true statement. Just a statement about the nature of reality. Not a theological statement in the biggest sense. It's just a statement about reality. He is that long-awaited Messiah. So it's not just that he claimed to be. He actually is. So Pilate actually insists on keeping the sign accurate. But what's he, in his mind, what's he doing? Sticking it to him one last time. All right. So I think we are going to stop there because at the next the next verses take us to um the the crucifixion itself and the the his garments and the rest of it so i think we'll just stop right there and we will pick up there at verse 23 next week we'll do it in person if you in addition to online the online's still going to happen but when we come to peril hall if there are questions that have arisen for you today Take a moment and jot them down and bring them next um, Tuesday because it's a lot easier to, to deal with them as, you know, sort of when we're all together in that way, right? Um, I don't get so many questions online, but in person, yeah. So that's awesome and I love it because I prefer to uh, talk about things that y'all want to talk about. <laughs> so anyway... So I think we're going to end it right there. Um, I don't see anything coming in on the comment section. I don't think it would be popping up here. So I'm going to close this in prayer and um, wish, wish a very good day for all of you. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, every time we come to the story of the crucifixion, in truth, it's a harrowing experience. We want to turn away, understandably. It's, it's, we're talking about what Jesus was willing to endure for us. As, as we learned in John's gospel, Jesus said, there's no greater love than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus is doing and suffering the most brutal, most horrifying death that the Romans could mete out. So help us in the coming days and weeks as we are in Lent and approaching Holy Week to, to appreciate this gift that you have given us. This, this Help us to be, to be grateful and thankful and fully aware, fully aware of of the price paid as, as Paul would write some years later not a lot of years later but some years later we were bought with a price we are not our own we were bought with the price Paul wrote and that price is what we've been reading about today and talking about today um, help us to grasp this and we just pray your blessings on all those gathered here May your Holy Spirit lift up to you all the prayers that are carried on our hearts. Um, all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, adios. Patty will be back next time. And I will see all of you. Bye-bye.